In Jesus' name, amen. So for the past few weeks, we were in chapter 3 of Mark. Uh, We saw Jesus teaching about the Sabbath and giving us rest in him. Uh, We also saw that a great crowd was following Jesus. The demons actually spoke up and recognized who Jesus is as the Son of God. Then his family came along and said, you're crazy. And then the religious leaders came along and said, no, he is even worse than that. He's of the demons. He's of Beelzebul. And uh, we studied that out. And we saw last week that there is a sin that can go so far in our hearts and lives when we attribute the works of Jesus to Satan. And we studied that out last week. So this morning we're moving into chapter 4 where we see the urgency of hearing and responding to God's word. That's our focus this morning. There's an urgency to hearing and responding to God's word. Now, this has always been a focus for God's people. He speaks to his people, and these are not just words that drop like marbles and then roll off the table and then can be discarded. These are like seeds that are supposed to be planted into our hearts. And from those seeds, growth is supposed to take place and fruit is supposed to be there. So from the very beginning of scripture, you see God speaking and his word that is spoken is for the good of people. Going all the way back to the Garden of Eden where he gives Adam and Eve guidance on how to live in fellowship with him. As you move throughout the Old Testament, you see the importance of God's word being in The lives of his people, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 6 through 9, where Moses commanded the people in the following way. He said, in these words, I command you today. These are God's words. They shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently. Notice where they're supposed to be. They're supposed to be on your heart. Teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. So all around is where God's word was supposed to be. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. And the point is clear that God's word is to be in front of God's people. Joshua 1 verse 8. Joshua told the people, This book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but... You shall meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it. For then you will make your way prosperous and then you will have good success. Again, the word of God is to be in front of people. Psalm 1 verses 1 and 2. The psalmist says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But notice where his delight is. His delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, he's meditating on it day and night. As you move throughout the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, and Ezekiel, you continually hear this phrase or read this phrase, hear the word of the Lord. And again, this hearing is not something where you're sitting through a lecture And you have nothing to answer for afterwards or nothing to to give back afterwards. This kind of hearing is the kind of hearing where life depends on it. You listen to it and then you apply it every day in life. And that's where Jesus is going with this parable of the sower. So this morning we're going to cover 
this parable, and again, it teaches us the importance of hearing God's word with the goal that there would be fruit in our life or change in our life. Now, just three different sections to the sermon this morning. I'll give them to you as we go. First off is just simply the parable. Um, Pastor Mike read this parable. Jesus is alongside the Sea of Galilee. This is probably taking place the same day that Mark chapter 3 took place, where we finished up last week. Crowds have been gathering around Jesus. A very large crowd has come, and he's pressed again up against the sea. The crowd is close to him, and just in a very kind of strategic, common sense move, there's a boat there, and Jesus steps into the boat and probably sets himself back a little bit further so that the angle of speaking is less. He can speak to more people that way. I imagine it's just a calm day. Water is still. Jesus is sitting in the boat. And verse 2 simply says that he was teaching them many things in parables. Now, what is a parable? A parable was a common method of teaching, especially in the first century. A parable presents an earthly story, something that everybody in the audience would understand. But a parable isn't intended just to present a story and be done. A parable in Jesus' teaching is meant to present a truth about the kingdom of God, about our response to the kingdom of God. And we've talked about this kingdom. This kingdom that Jesus is talking about earlier in chapter 1 is different than a physical kingdom with borders and boundaries to it. It's not physical in nature, it's spiritual. And he's teaching about God's spiritual kingdom that is coming with the rule and reign of Christ. It comes in Jesus' words and in his works. And this is a different kind of kingdom. And people are sort of confused and shaking their head back and forth. And so he keeps teaching them over and over. And eventually the fog will lift. And they'll be able to see a little more clearly. But here's one of those parables about the kingdom of God. So how does this parable teach on the kingdom of God? He tells them in verse 3, listen. I just want you to listen. Behold, a sower went out to sow. So here's a farmer. You can imagine that he has a bag of seed on his side here. And he's going out and he's broadcasting the seed very liberally on the ground all over the place. Everybody would have been familiar with this. Many people had gardens if they lived in town. They would have walked right outside the walls and there would have been fields that farmers would have been cultivating and planting seed. And this seed that the farmer is casting, it's it's flung out liberally and it scatters into many different soils. The way that I think of it is sort of like grass seed, very lightweight, and that's meant to broadcast all over the place and it, it might go onto your patio, it might go into the flower garden. Well, there's four different soils that this seed just eventually falls down onto. The first one, we'll just move through this quickly. Some seed fell on soil along a path. It was common for a field to have a hard-packed path that would go right down the middle for people to travel through. And birds would come along and just find an easy snack with that seed that had fallen on the path. Some seed fell on rocky ground, and that seed, Jesus says, it sprouted, but 
the roots, when they began to reach out, since it was rocky ground, they couldn't penetrate the stony ground. And the sun just beats down and scorches those tender roots, and that plant withered away. There was a third soil. Some of the seed fell among thorns. And in my mind, for some reason, my mind thinks about a tomato plant in in the thorns here where, yes, there's soil at the bottom of the thorns. And that seed drops into the soil and it begins to sprout and up comes this tomato plant with those soft leaves and maybe some yellow buds. But you know tomato plants, they're kind of high maintenance in one sense. Like they, they need sun, they need their space. But here are these thorns that are wrapped around it and starting to cause it to bend over. And eventually those thorns choke out that tomato plant. Then Jesus says there is a fourth soil. And that is this good soil here in verse 8. It says other seeds fell into good soil and it produced grain growing up and increasing and yielding 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. So that's the parable. It's very understandable. We can see four different soils. We can see somebody going out and casting seed. But Jesus doesn't stop there. In verse 9, he simply says, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Again, first-time listener understands the parable. And we might say, I heard the parable that you just shared, but Jesus, when it comes to the truth that it points to, if a parable is meant to convey a significant truth, it seems as though this parable could go in a number of different ways. We need the teacher to make the connection for us. Because so far, there isn't one. So verse 10, you see this in your Bible. It says, when he was alone, those around him with the twelve, asked him about the parables. Now, this probably took place later on, if you will, in the chapter, but Mark is inserting it here because it makes sense to the reader to understand this uh, parable. So these, these twelve and a smaller crowd come back to Jesus with the question. Now, think about this for just a minute. A great crowd has heard Jesus share these parables. And they would have been in the same place in terms of not understanding the parable. But it's only the 12 and this small crowd that come back to Jesus and ask him about it. It tells us about the crowd. Apparently not too many people care to know about the meaning. They hear Jesus teaching, but at least in this particular circumstance, they're content walking away. It's only a few who come back and really seek to understand this. And that's what leads us to perhaps the most challenging part here of this parable. And this is just point number two or section number two. And and this is just simply what I'm going to call the tension. Okay, so these 12 and a small number of people come back to Jesus and they ask him, please explain this parable to us because we don't get the significant truth of it. Well, in verse 11, he says to them, To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. But for those outside, everything is in parables. Now here's the hard part. So that, and Jesus quotes from Isaiah 6 here, 
they may indeed see but not perceive and may indeed hear but not understand lest they should turn and be forgiven. I mean, we hear those words and immediately my words, my thoughts are going in a direction that concludes with God, that's not fair. All right, so let's walk through this. I see three important truths here. Truth number one is this. God makes his truth clear to people who want to know it. God makes his truth clear to people who want to know it. You see in verse 11, this group has come to Jesus, and Jesus responds and says, to you has been given. Who is the you? It's those who have been searching the understanding of Jesus' words. The crowds, they heard the parable, but they went along on their happy way. They may have gone home that night, sat around the table, and someone said, man, that Jesus guy, he's a really good teacher, isn't he? That parable about the sower really describes our everyday life with our gardens and our fields. Someone at the table says, yeah, it sure did, but what did it mean? Well, I have no clue. I just really like the way he talks. Yeah, do you think we should ask around to see if there was anything significant to that story? Nah, it's no big deal. I think he's just a cool speaker. Yeah, I think the same way too. So there's a group of people who don't really care to understand what God is saying to them. But then there are others who are coming and saying, what does this parable mean? We, we understand the concept of planting seed, but we didn't get the connection. And this group is a contrast to the others. They hear the word of God. They have a strong desire to understand Jesus' words. And they come and ask, and Jesus is going to make it clear to them. So listen, folks. God's word matters. There are things that are taught, and there are things that are in the scriptures. And a lot of times, we can just go through the motions of hearing them. But don't stop there. Move toward the meaning of scripture and ask questions about it. And I think that as you ask questions about it and as you go to God and ask God, please help me to understand this and rightly apply it to my life, he will do that for you. Jesus says, to you has been given the secret of this kingdom. Uh, this secret, some of your versions might say mystery, is simply this, that this was previously concealed, but now it is revealed. And this is chapter 1, verse 15, where Jesus said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So here's the kingdom of God. We're thinking it might be in physical boundaries and physical borders. And Jesus says, no, the kingdom of God is here. It's spiritual in nature. And the crowds did not understand this aspect of the kingdom. They wanted something grand. For those of you who have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, this secret, this mystery that is now revealed to you is glorious in nature. Your spiritual eyes have been opened, and we've been singing songs this morning about who Jesus is and what he has done in our lives and how he carries authority in our lives. That's who we are if you're born again. Like the secret of this kingdom is that Jesus is the Savior. He's the Messiah, the Son of God, and this is good news for us. 
But then there are those who are outside. And you see this in verse 11 as well. He says, but for those who are outside, everything is in parables. Um, That leads us to our second truth, that there are outsiders. Who is Jesus referring to here? Well, if you go back to the end of chapter 3, you remember that Jesus' family comes to him. Verse 31, it says, And his mother and his brothers came, and standing outside, they sent to him and called him. And a crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. So here is Jesus' family who is outside the house, and Mark makes it a point just to include that word, and he's going to use it as a hook later. And Jesus responds by saying, Well, who are my mother and who are my brothers? And looking around at those who sat around him, he said, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and my sister and my mother. And what Jesus is basically saying is, there's a family that I have, and the family that I have is inside the kingdom. These are my mother, brothers, and sisters. These are the ones who do the will of God. But then there are outsiders. There are those who are outside who do not do the will of God. And so Mark brings that along into this, and he says, there are those who are outside of this conversation. There are those who are outside the kingdom of God. They haven't surrendered to Jesus as ruler. There are those who are inside, and there are those who are outside. Now, what about those who are outside? Verse 12 is our third truth here. For those who are outside, the word of God will harden hearts. The word of God will harden hearts. This is the hard saying here, verse 12, where he says, so that they may indeed see, but not perceive, and may indeed hear, but not understand, lest they should turn and be forgiven. Now keep in mind, Jesus is talking about these outsiders, this crowd that has heard the word of God and they've made their choice. They're not seeking to understand what it means. And that's where this quotation in Isaiah 6 comes from. This quotation from Isaiah 6, God had come to Judah, which is the southern kingdom of Israel, and he had warned them over and over again, it's time to repent, come back to me, turn away from your sin. And they kept pressing forward into their sin over and over again. Their continual response was a hardened rejection to God's word. They had acted that way. The time for God's word to have an effective change on their life had now come to an end. And in so many words, God was saying, I will continue to give them opportunities to see. I'm going to let them continue to see, but they won't perceive it any differently than they have in the past. I will continue to give them opportunities to hear, but they won't understand these words any differently than they have in the past. The word of God would only drive their hearts into hardness which is a warning for us. As one author writes, Jesus' point is that just as the sun that hardens the clay also melts the wax, so the word of the gospel offends the resistant and rebellious while it enthusiastically is received by the receptive. The word of God is meant to bring us to repentance. 
It's meant to bring us to a place where we would say, yes, God, I trust you. You are good and I want to follow you. I want to surrender to you. That is the safest place to be. But when the continual response is disinterest or flat-out rejection, then the word of God will have a hardening effect on our hearts. That's what Jesus is saying here. And the initial response is, that's not fair, God. But that's not the response that is meant to come from this text. The response from this text is that we should have ears to continually hear. When God's word is opened for your personal quiet time, when God's word is open for preaching and teaching, don't let your mind go into drift mode where the word of God has now this almost hardening effect. It's a dangerous place to be. What we want to do is have ears that can hear and respond to the word of God so that the truth falls on our hearts and produces change. Think of it this way. Someone is preparing, going to school to fly an airplane. They sit through the lectures at flight school. They listen to the teacher over and over, and they're soaking things up, anticipating the day when they get to sit in the cockpit and take that plane down the runway and take off. There's another student in the classroom with a cocky attitude that says, I really don't need this stuff. It was exciting the first day, and I hope to fly, but I don't want any more of this stuff. I know it all on my own. Day after day, both individuals are hearing the same thing. One is soaking it up, just learning how the plane works and learning the controls. And the other one comes in, and as soon as the lecture starts, his mind goes into daydream mode. And soon his head is on the table. But when the day comes to fly, the first student takes off and flies with ease. And the other just gets to the end of the runway and crashes and burns. Now, whose fault is it? Is it the lecturer's fault at that point that the second pilot had a hardened heart? No. They came in, and day after day, because of their rejection of the material, their heart got hardened even more and more and more. And Jesus' warning here is this. When the word of God is preached, taught, opened, or read, listen with ears to learn. Listen with ears so that the word of God would settle on your heart and produce change, which is now where we move into the third section of our study here. And this is the explanation of the parable, simply the explanation of the parable. Verse 13. Jesus says to them, do you not understand this parable? How then will you understand all the parables? Now, this could be taken as Jesus being irritated and frustrated at the disciples. <clears throat> I don't think that's the case here. When we come to God and we're asking questions for understanding, that's a good thing. I think you could think of this as a coach. And a coach has a player come to him and the player is saying, coach, I didn't get that play, or I didn't get that basic. I need to get that down. And the coach says, yeah, you don't get that down. You're not going to be able to get the rest of it down. Let's get this down here. I think that's Jesus' attitude here as he talks to his disciples and this small crowd here. 
The first thing that we see here is that the seed represents the word of God. You see that in verse 14. The sower sows the word. So all along we've been talking about the word. These seeds are meant to have a connection to the word of God. And then he moves into the four different soils. The four different soils are where the word of God lands so that the word of God is landing in people's hearts and he can mix the word of God with soil. So there's four soils. Let's talk about the four different types of hearts here where the word of God is planted. Number one, there is the soil along the path. For some people, the word of God is cast out and it falls upon their lives and then Satan comes along and snatches that truth away from their hearts. Now, how does this happen? Who's Satan? John 8, 44. He is called the father of lies. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, he's referred to as the God of this world who has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. Satan's lies in this world, Satan's deception in this world is what snatches away truth from people's ears and from their hearts. There are some people who think the word of God is absolutely foolish. You run into folks who say, man, if it's not scientifically true, why would I even think about believing this? It's a fairy tale. It's something that, you know, past centuries people believed in, but now we're more modernized. We don't need that anymore. Those are tactics in which Satan can steal the truth away from people's hearts. Then there's the seed that falls on the rocky soil. This person receives the truth about God with joy. They are excited because something has come into their lives and it brings light into darkness, but they have no stability, no root that goes down into the soil. And so Jesus says in verse 17, when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, immediately they fall away. Now, how would we see this? Um, This is one of those, I think, examples in ministry that is hard for me pastorally because I think that there are people who fall into this category more often. Take a, I'll just throw a number out there, a 55-year-old woman, for example. An adult has shared the gospel of Jesus Christ faithfully with her for several years, and it makes sense to her. She finally has found Jesus to be good, a savior who delivers people from sins. She responds emotionally to the gospel, but her husband of 30 years has no time for Jesus, and he doesn't like that his wife has all of a sudden made changes. They used to go out camping every weekend and had no care about gathering together with God's people. That was not on their radar screen. But now, instead of camping every weekend, she... She has this desire, this longing to be with God's people. She wants to be reading and digesting the Bible. She wants to be going to church. And for several months, that's what she does. And meanwhile, her husband and her friends start lightly mocking her. After several months, it escalates where the husband is fed up with his new wife. And he comes to her and says, this whole Jesus thing is just crazy. It has to stop. We had a life together before you got these crazy ideas about Jesus. And Now you're all only hanging out at church. You need to make a decision. 
It's me or that crazy idea that you've been thinking through. And here's a woman who's been married for 30 years to this guy. She has received the word, it says, with joy. But now there's this conflict, this tribulation that she has to face. Or think about a college guy who has a girlfriend. They're used to sleeping together. But through a Christian classmate in his science lab, this college guy comes to hear the word of God and he receives it with joy and he starts attending a Bible study, a a campus Bible study. He likes the message of God's forgiveness. It's a joy to him and he hears that this sexual relationship with his girlfriend is contradictory to the Bible. Sex is meant for inside of marriage. And so he goes to his girlfriend, he says, we need to stop. Not because you're not lovely and beautiful, but because God tells me in his word that sex is meant for marriage. But sex has been her security and her way of feeling valued. And her boyfriend, well, he's just stupidly gone down this new path. he's, He's nuts now. And she finally confronts him and says, listen, I don't know what you've gotten into. I don't know what's going on with you, but you used to pursue me like crazy. Now I don't even know if you really like me. You need to make a decision, either me or your new way of life. And the guy steps back and he says, man, it's not worth this kind of tribulation. I'm going back to where I was. In those situations, Jesus says that the word of God was heard and it was even received into people's hearts. And what's interesting is that it was even received with joy. But the seed never took root. It was simply an emotional moment, never a permanent placement. And again, this is a warning for folks. A warning that there are these dangers that can be there where folks can think, I must be all good. And Jesus says, no, it was only an emotional moment at the time. Now, switching categories from those illustrations. As a church, we need to be very careful that we don't try to emotionally manipulate people to receive the gospel. As a pastor, I know that I can stand up here and on Sunday mornings, I could go find really, really, really powerful illustrations and fill up a sermon with powerful illustrations and some people would be crying. I can move into other illustrations where people would be laughing and some churches function that way and at the end they say, man, I love that message, I love what I heard, I'm all in. And we don't want to go there because a seed can be planted and if it's received even with joy, What happens, Jesus says, is that that kind of presentation or that kind of reception, even of the gospel, can be just for a season. When tribulation hits, it's gone. When we talk to our kids, when we disciple our kids, just very openly, I do not, like, guilt my kids with hell and then tell them about Jesus and then say, now, if you pray this prayer, you'll be safe. What we're aiming to do is just teach them the truth. Teach them the truth about hell. Teach them the truth about the gospel. But I don't want their response to be an emotionally driven response. 
that later they look back and say, man, it, it never took root. Now, this is one of the reasons why we oftentimes don't have an invitation at the end of a service. The historic invitation where people stand up and the music starts playing and people are just grabbing the front of their seats and a pastor is up front saying, you know, if you mean well, you better come down here and repent. And some of you have no clue what I'm talking about, but others of you do know what I'm talking about. There is a place to be invited to respond to God's word, but oftentimes those invitations can be emotional manipulations. And so Jesus says, man, it's possible that a seed can be planted, there can be joy, but in the end, it's gone. There's a third soil here. And this is the soil of the thorns, verse 18 where he says, and others are the ones sown among the thorns. So he's combining the soil with the word. They are those, again, who hear the word. If you go through this section and just put a box or a circle around the word here, you'll see it keeps coming up over and over again. Now, this soil that is represented by the thorns is characterized by three dangers here. Number one, this people have cares for this world. You see that here, uh, verse 19, but the cares of this world, number two, the deceitfulness of riches, and then number three, the desire for other things, they enter in and choke the word, and it proves unfruitful here. So you've got the things that are on people's mind, these cares, you've got riches, this desire for money, and then maybe a catch-all, this desire for other things. They can easily come in and that truth that was planted on the heart of this person all of a sudden is rivaled by materialism. And I think it's important just to note here that Jesus is not condemning wealth per se. Some people are going to be wealthy because they have a unique gift and that gift pays them well. Paul says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 17, As for this rich in the present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So you've got rich people, but Paul or Jesus is not saying just because you're rich, you're going to have the, the truth choked out. What Jesus is saying is that someone who longs to be rich, someone who cares more about the things that money can buy than walking in fellowship with Jesus will look like a plant among thorns. Spiritual desire for fellowship with God will be choked out by desires for wealth and materialism. And so that's the danger there. And that's the third type of soil. These would be the outsiders. Now, it's interesting here, and you can't see this in your English text, but the word here up to this point is presented in one tense, one specific tense that has almost like a past tense to it. It's called the aorist tense for those of you who've done a little bit of work in Greek. He switches tenses in verse 20 here where he says about the fourth soil, those that were sown in the good soil are the ones who hear the word. And the tense here is a present tense, meaning that they didn't just hear it and it's done and behind them. They are hearing it, and they are hearing it over and over again. So there are things that my dad said when I was a son. Things that my dad said that I heard, and it was gone. But there are things that my dad said that I heard, 
and I keep hearing them even today. And that's the effect that Jesus is lending here. Where the word of God has come, you heard it maybe on Sunday, or you opened it, your Bible, and you saw it on Monday, or you see this truth in the Bible, and it keeps coming back over and over again in your ears. And this is the fourth soil. It says, those who hear the word of God and accept it and bear fruit, 30-fold, 60-fold, and some 100-fold. It keeps coming back to them. They've heard for the purpose of walking in fellowship with God. They hear and it has a weighty effect on their lives. These are the insiders. Now what is this 30, 60, 100? Some think that this is a disciple-making reference, like you go out and you start casting seed and there's an evangelistic kind of harvest that takes place. I don't think it's just about making disciples. I think it's about bearing fruit in our lives. Jesus said in John chapter 15, verse 5, he said, Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. This is the life that has responded to the gospel, that has responded to the call of the kingdom where Jesus' words are coming into his or her life. We've repented. We were going a certain direction, and now we've repented and followed Jesus, and we believe This is the person who hears the word of God and lives by it. This is the kind of person who has decisions to make in life. They're asked about parenting, and it's not the latest, like, Dr. Phil thing that comes out. They go to their Bible, and they say, what does the Bible have to say about this? And their children come to them and ask them questions about what they can do and what they can't do. And they go to the Bible, and they open it up and say, what does the Bible say about this? Their marriage is struggling along the way, and and they just go to the Bible, and they open up the Bible and say, how am I supposed to be living as a husband or as a wife? They are hearing it and living by it regularly. And that's what this parable is about, a willingness to hear the word of God. And when we hear it and hear it and hear it, there's a fruitfulness that takes place. To hear the word of God and do it. So there are four different kinds of people, but really we could break it down to two different kinds of people. Those who are outside and those who are inside. Those who hear the word of God and discard it, or those who hear the word of God and hold it closely. And we just wrap up this sermon with a question for reflection this week. Are you, are you hearing the word of God? Let's pray.